Uh, you can open up to John chapter 17 and just hold your place there for just a moment. Before we left for spring break, uh, if you were with us here at ACF, we spent seven weeks in a sermon series here at ACF on the Lord's Prayer. We called it Teach Us to Pray. And, uh, and this was a, a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And today, I don't want to look at the Lord's Prayer. Rather, I want to look at a prayer that our Lord prayed. And I'm calling this message, We Are One. We Are One. Today, I don't want to look at the Lord's prayer, the prayer pattern of Jesus. Uh, this is how he said, when, when, when the disciples said, teach us to pray, he said, I'm going to teach you how to pray. This is how you ought to pray. We're not going to look at the prayer pattern of Jesus. Rather, we're going to look at a specific prayer that Jesus prayed called the high priestly prayer in John 17. Now, uh, you may know this, but we actually don't have many places in Scripture where we see firsthand what it is that Jesus prayed. We know that he prayed. We see it over and over again throughout the Gospels. The Gospel writers write, and then Jesus went off to pray. And then Jesus went off to this desolate place to pray. And Jesus went off alone to pray. But, but we don't always know exactly what it is that we prayed. But in today's passage, we actually see a full account of exactly what it is that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Now, we're not going to go through the whole prayer because the, the prayer actually spans across the entire chapter of all of chapter 17, but rather, I want to pick up at the very end in John 17, starting at verse 20, because I believe there's something in this part of the prayer that is deeply applicable to our context here today. And so, uh, I'm going to invite Michaela to come back up to read today's scripture passage for us, and if you don't have a Bible in front of you, that's okay, we'll have the text up on this massive screen, holy, I mean, like, I walked in, this is not, this is a, a bit, a step up from the Hub Alumni Hall screen, but uh, the text will be up here on the screen, uh, we're going to pick up from John 17, starting in verse 20, this will be in the ESV, so. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in, the, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Friends, as we consider this passage, this text here this morning in John 17, I want to present before you the big idea for today, the central theme, the driving core message of the sermon. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. The strongest testimony of our faith is our love for one another. The strongest testimony of our faith is our love for one another. 
Another way to put this would be the best apologetic for the Christian faith is our oneness. The best apologetic for the Christian faith is our oneness. Now, what do we mean by that? The word apologetics, if you don't know, is simply referring to the defense of the Christian faith. It's the, the, the ability to defend the Christian faith. And so any arguments that would defend the veracity of the Christian faith is the work of apologetics. And so maybe you're, you know, as you journey with Christ, this is an area that really piques your interest, you know, like the the world of apologetics. And and in the world of apologetics, you have great Christian apologists out there who defend the Christian faith through compelling and convincing arguments and explanations. You got guys like Josh McDowell who have been doing this for decades, and then his son Sean McDowell who has written several books on, you know, these are public figures in the world of, of, of Christianity that, that have stood in public spheres and have defended the faith. You've got guys like Lee Strobel who wrote The, the Case for Christ and uh, one, of the, one of the top selling apologetics book, books out there to date, uh, even, even today. You've got folks like Frank Turek uh, who uh, here at ACF we actually hosted a number of years back. He's got some great content online that you can look up. He's all about defending the faith. And more recently, you've got folks like Rebecca McLaughlin who wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, and it deals with issues of uh, women and slavery and issues of sexuality and sexual identity and ethics and all kinds of things like that are, that, that, that culture comes into the, the Christian spheres and say, hey, what about this? What say you? You know, what about this issue? And so, you know, Rebecca McLaughlin approaches this and, and she defends the faith from that perspective. You got guys like Tim Keller, although he's not a formal Christian apologist, so to speak, he speaks on, you know, the, the reason for God and all of these things and, and, and stands in public spheres and defends the faith. And these are folks who are committed to defending the Christian faith. They're committed to the work of apologetics. Now, I don't take away anything from any of these guys' ministries or any of these folks' ministries. I deeply believe in the work of apologetics. In fact, Peter says, you ought to have a reason for your faith. We're not, we're, we're, we're not dismembered. You know, our minds and our brains aren't disembodied from our, the rest of our bodies. We ought to think intellectually and think about these matters of the Christian faith thoughtfully and methodically. You know, and so I deeply believe in the work of apologetics. But I want to revisit what Jesus said in today's passage. In verse 21, he prays this. I pray that they may all be one... Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me, friends, people who profess faith in Jesus, people who declare that we follow him. He's praying that we may all be one, just as God, you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, get this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I pray that they may be one, not, not just so that they would feel good within their Christian communities, not so, that, not so that they feel the warm and fuzzies within the Christian communities that they find themselves in. I pray that they may be one so that for the purposes of, for the reason being, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them 
Which again, I mean, we, we could just spend a, a whole another sermon on just that one line alone. Wait a second, the glory that you have given me, the glory of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven you've given to me, I, Jesus says, I have given to them. You and me are glory holders of the kingdom of God, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, here it is again, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Friends, let me say it again. The best apologetic for the Christian faith, our best defense for the Christian faith, the strongest testimony of our faith is our love for one another, is our oneness within the body of Christ. When I was living in New York, uh, before moving out here, this was uh, just under a decade ago now, uh, I, had a, I had a friend who was a, a high school physics teacher. His name is Mike, and, and Mike is continuing to teach in, in the high school uh, out over in New York, and he's, he's a physics teacher, like I said. Mike, Mike was, um, he, he was, he was sort of the opposite of me. He was uber smart. I mean, he was, a, he was highly intellectual, very cerebral, like, you know, it just, you know, uh, sort of a, um, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a bad way, I don't know how to say it, where it doesn't sound bad, he had sort of a dry personality, you know what I mean, like, I, I loved Mike, but he was like, very, very cerebral, very heady, you know, like, and, and he was thoughtful, he was methodical, he would look over every detail of his life with a, a fine-tooth comb and all, all these things, and he, he saw the world from that perspective, from a very logical, analytical sort of standpoint, and, and, and Mike and I, we would go out to, uh, to often for, he was one of, my, one of my good friends back in New York, and I, I, I loved having conversations with Mike because he, he looked at the world from such a very different angle than, than I would typically look at, and so I always appreciated his perspective on things. Now, my, my buddy Mike didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, he, he didn't grow up with any faith traditions or, or you know, any church background. And as you can imagine, his world was seen through a very scientific grid. It was seen through this sort of very scientific, there was no category or space in his life or in his mind for God. I mean, he grew up in a, in a home that was very sort of, you know, very logical in nature. There's no space for God. Here's how you ought to think about life, and here's how you, are, you ought to analyze the things and the facts of this world. And, and so he saw life from this sort of, again, from this very scientific analytic grid. He had no space for God in his mind. It wasn't until he went off to college that he found Christ, and he didn't find Christ through a compelling presentation given by a world-renowned apologist. He didn't hear an irrefutable argument from a Christian brother or sister. As intellectual as he was and as academic as he was, I mean, this guy, like, he loved the world of physics. I mean, who loves physics? You know, my, my, I know Mike does, maybe, I don't know. But, like, who, but he was like, man, that's like, that was his world. And so like, he, as, as, as cerebral and as thoughtful and as analytical as he was, it wasn't an irrefutable argument of the Christian faith that he was faced with that ultimately brought him to faith. He wasn't confronted by, with a convincing explanation for the existence of God or anything like that. You want to know what ultimately convinced my buddy Mike that there was a God after all? 
It was a small Christian community on the campus of Cornell that he attended that so loved each other, radically so with the love of Christ, that he thought to himself, you know, I, I have never seen people love like this before. I have never seen people love one another in this kind of way before. And the more he got around these Jesus followers, the more he believed, well, there has to be a God. There has to be a God. Because everywhere else I look, everywhere else in the world that I look, I don't see this, I don't find this, I cannot discover this anywhere else. It's in the church, it's in the body of Christ that he ultimately found that. It's because the world, they were living in a way that just seemed so countercultural to the, to the way this Christian community was living. It was almost as if they were loving each other in a supernatural kind of way. He met this community. He witnessed their love for one another. And the result was he gave his life to Jesus. Now, it doesn't always work that way. But I'll tell you this much, it happens more often than you think. It's not unique to Mike's story. I hear it time and time again. You know, I wasn't really, I wasn't so sure about this whole Christianity thing, this whole religion thing. But it wasn't until I got, I got around some, some Christians, some Jesus-loving people, and I started witnessing and watching how they interacted with one another that all of a sudden, some things started to awaken in my mind and in my spirit. I can't help but wonder, is that what Jesus was getting at in John 17, verse 23? I pray that they may become perfectly one so that the world may believe that you sent me and you love them and even as you love me. The strongest testimony of our faith is our love for one another. For the remainder of our time, I just want to quickly go over just a couple of things. I, I, I want to talk about, I want to talk about real quick the how. I want to talk about how do we live this, how do we really become one? The message of this title is we are one, and yet if we are really honest with ourselves, we don't always feel like one, do we? <laughs> we don't always feel the oneness that Jesus is praying for, whether it's here in church whether it's in your, in your respective campus ministries or whether it's in your friendship circles, the truth is we are one is a nice sentiment that we don't always feel. We don't always experience in real time. And so the question is, how do we love one another? How do we become a John 17 kind of community, a people that represent the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17? Now, just, just to give you... Uh, uh, just a, a little bit of a warning. Uh, I want to give you three really practical applications for growing in our oneness within the body of Christ. But today's not going to be sort of a, a traditional sermon in, in, in sort of the, the way that I, I usually preach. I do have three uh, points that I, I, I want to just unpack here real quickly. But this message is going to be a little bit more of a how-to seminar <laughs> Uh, rather than a traditional, um, you know, a sermon in, in, that, in that way. I want to talk about a few things that are deeply practical, okay? Because I think it's easy to sentimentalize the oneness 
of John 17, it's like, again, let's, let's, you know, when we think about let's be one, we are one, let's hold hands and sing kumbaya around the fire. Like, that's, that's what we think. Like, we over-sentimentalize this feeling of oneness within the body of Christ. But I don't, as much of a sentimental sap that I am, I don't want to go there. I want to get deeply practical. I want to get really practical and address some of the how-tos of how do we become one? Now, this is impossible to sum up in the next 15 minutes or so, 10 minutes or so, but I do have three things, three practical applications that I think would help us move in the trajectory, move in the direction of becoming a John 17 kind of community where we would truly be one. So the first practical application, first point of practical application is this. We need to learn to move past first impressions. Move past first impressions. Now, if you know this, you know this to be true. First impressions is all about immediate chemistry, right? You know, first, uh, the, the, that first week back from summer break and like we're meeting new people and we're introducing ourselves and all these things and we're encountering new students that are coming into Penn State and all these things, we're looking for What? The first impression, the immediate chemistry. We're asking questions like, did we hit it off? Do we have common interests? Are we alike in any way? Is there any overlap? Do we come from similar backgrounds? And when the answer is yes to all of those questions, it's a beautiful thing. It's like, ah, chemistry, my people, people from my tribe, right? Like, you're, you are like me, right? Like, and, and that first impression, that immediate chemistry is something that we look for. And when you have immediate chemistry, like I said, it's an incredible thing. You know what else it is? Incredibly rare. It's rare. It happens, and you may have experienced it yourself, but it is also rare. It's nice when it happens, but it is certainly not the norm. Rather, the much normal and common approach, progression, if you will, to relational building is the ongoing, persistent, making time and space in your in, in, room in your life for the people in your life. It doesn't happen on day one, conversation one. Maybe, just maybe, your best friend today is the same person that you hit it off on day one. Maybe. But for the vast majority, you begin to discover, wait, wait a second, it, it was actually not the first conversation. It wasn't my first impression. It wasn't, all, it wasn't any of that. It was this long, ongoing, persistent making time and space and room in my life for the people in my life that has brought my relationships to the places where they are. Sometimes, uh, you know, I think, I think we give way too much weight to first impressions. I want you to think about Jesus for a minute. Did you know that Jesus' first impression was not all that great? If you, if you know the story, uh, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, in the book that we're in, in John chapter 1, you find Jesus going around, scouting the land, and he's calling his disciples. He's saying, hey, you, follow me. Hey, you, follow me. And we talked about this at our midweeks. Hey, you, follow me, right? And Jesus, and one of those disciples that Jesus called to follow him was a guy by the name of Philip. And Philip's enthused. He's like, man, I, like, this is... I, this is the Messiah. I'm following the Messiah. Philip, out of his excitement, runs over to his buddy Nathaniel and says, hey, Big Nate, he's here. 
He is here. The Messiah that, that, that Moses and all the prophets spoke of, he's here. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And you want to know what Nathaniel's response was? Nazareth? Does, does anything good come from Nazareth? Like, what do you mean Nazareth, right? Like, oh, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, what you, know, what you may not know is Nazareth was seen as sort of this insignificant, no-name town. There was nothing special about Nazareth. Nazareth was not this big metropolitan area that was, you know, busy with life and activity. Nazareth was, was sort of this no-name town. In fact, it's sort of how my family tends to see central Pennsylvania, Okay, I, I mean, every time I go back home, you know, we visit family in New York and New Jersey, and it was no different this past spring break. We went and visited family back home in New York and in New Jersey, and, and whenever we visit family, one of the questions that they always ask is, so how are things in Pennsylvania? How are things in the backwoods of central Pennsylvania? You know, because they're like, they're living in, you know, New York City, big metropolitan area, and, and, and the suburbs, and the, and the New Jersey area, and all these things, and so in their mind, they're like... You guys, Dan and Nicole, you live in the backwoods of PA, right? And I, I, we always have to clarify, guys, we are not hillbillies, okay? We are, we, you know, people in central PA have teeth, okay? They're, they're like, we have running water. Like, like this, is, this is not how you think it is. Like, we are not in the deep country. But that's sort of how people saw Nazareth. Nazareth? Like, are you, well, what do you mean the Messiah has come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth was the first impression of Jesus for many of these disciples. The Jesus of Nazareth. Wait, what? You see, I, I think some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we dismiss people from our lives far too quickly. We dismiss people from our lives far too quickly based off of first impressions. We give far too much weight to that first impression, that initial encounter, to that first conversation. How do they make me feel in that initial moment? Was that first meeting awkward? Was that first conversation awkward? Well, I guess we'll never be friends. <laughs> Was that, how, did that, how did that first encounter, that first interaction make me feel? I don't know. I felt a little uncomfortable. Well, there goes that friendship. It's like, What? Is that really how we're going about building relationships in our lives based off of first impressions? In fact, if I were honest with you, I wouldn't probably be talking to many of you because if I were working off of first impressions as a grid, okay, let me tell you my first impression of many. No, I, I, I won't go there. I won't go there. The last time I did that, Things went south real quick. I, we, I took our seniors out to dinner. We're like, we're going to celebrate you. And then we said, hey, why don't we go around and, and let's hear Dan's first impressions of all of us. And what was supposed to be a nice, funny, ha-ha moment became, I had to follow up with a, an email after the dinner. I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to roast all of you and all these things. But like, you know, so, so I won't go into all of these first impressions before, you know, for, for, for us here. But look, we have got to get to a place where we learn to develop meaningful friendships and relationships that go beyond how did that first initial thing, that, that moment, that encounter make me feel. Man, I'm, I'm telling you right now, if I dismissed every person who was not like me, if I dismissed every person that I did not have the most amazing first conversation with, that would knock off virtually the entire population in my life. That would knock off a significant roster of people in my life. My point is this. We've got to move beyond first impressions. 
Like, if we're really looking to be a community that is one, a community that really loves each other with the love of Jesus, with the love of Christ that is supernatural in nature, the kind of love that my buddy Mike encountered in that small Christian community, we have got to learn to say, okay, well, that first conversation didn't go so well. Let me try again. And then let me try again. And then let me try again. That relationship, that ongoing, persistent, making room and space in our lives for the people in our lives that move us past first impressions. If we stop at first impressions, we'll never grow in our oneness with one another. That's the bottom line. If we stop at first impressions, we will never grow in our oneness with one another. The second practical application point is this. Cultivate genuine curiosity. Cultivate genuine curiosity. Uh, Friends, I think curiosity is altogether lost on us as a generational society. If I can just be so bold as to say, I believe we have grown overly inward focused, so much so that we don't know how to be curious about anything outside of our world anymore. I'm not saying that to point any fingers. I am part of the problem. I'm I'm, I'm in it with all of you. I think we have grown overly inward focused, so much so that we don't know, we no longer have the capacity or the ability to be curious about anything that has nothing to do with our world in our immediate spheres. But friends, I really do believe that there needs to be a fundamental, drastic shift in our mindset in this area of curiosity. In fact, I I want to ask you to consider something this morning. When was the last time you sat across from someone else where the goal was really getting to know the person sitting in front of you? When was the last time you did that? Maybe it was last night. I don't know if it was good for you, good on you. You know, I don't know. But think about it. When was the last time you sat across from someone where the goal was really getting to know that person, where the goal wasn't just to hang out or to have a study partner or to, to, ha- or to have a good time. You know, that, those are all great byproducts. But the goal, the end goal was to really get to know the person sitting in front of you. You see, that kind of goal requires you to do something that, that may not come naturally to some of us at first but it's absolutely necessary in a healthy relational process. And that is, ask questions. Ask questions. It sounds so stupid simple, right? It sounds, it sounds so, so elementary, and yet I find so few of us actually do it. Why don't we ask questions anymore? Like where we really are trying to get to know people where we're trying to get to know. You see, the bottom line is this. Curiosity leads to questions. Curiosity will always lead to questions. And so you ask questions about them, about their upbringing. You're curious about them, about their perhaps their disappointments, about their dreams and aspirations. What kinds of hopes do they have for their lives? And by the way, this kind of shifting of our focus requires us to get our eyes off of ourselves long enough to care about the life of someone else, to care enough to ask questions. You see, friends, there's something deeply powerful that happens when you look someone in the eye with the intention of getting to know them, to to come to, to, to Aaron and say, hey, Aaron, 
I want to know you, bro. I want, I want to know your story. I want to, tell, tell, me, tell, me, tell me something I don't know about you. Tell me something about yourself. Tell me about your, like, tell, I, I, I want to know you. I want to know you. You know what's interesting about this? For some of us, this equally terrifies us, and yet on equal sides, it's our deepest heart's longing. Like, isn't that interesting that, that this sense of wanting to be seen and known lies somewhere in the balance of it's terrifying because what if they see me and they don't like what they see? What if they know me and they're not impressed? What if they know my story and they're bored, right? Like, that's, those fears are real, and yet there's something deep inside of our longing that says, oh, but I want to be known, but I want to be seen. I want to belong. So I want. I want to. I remember just thinking just for so much of my life, like I, I had a lot of acquaintances, a lot of people that I knew, but I, I never really connected with anyone on a soul level. And I remember praying for this for a good season of my life. Lord, bring people into my life where I can have a, a soul to soul kind of connection that goes beyond closeness by proximity. Like we're around each other a lot. We show up at the same events. We're, we're, we're together. But I, I couldn't tell you one thing that I know about Emily. I couldn't tell you one thing that I know about Sam. Like, I, I think that's, that has tragically become the norm for us. We are close by proximity, but there is no soul-to-soul connection. I mentioned this, uh, I mentioned this book before. But my friend Heather Holloman uh, wrote a book called The Six Conversations. And some of you may have read it before. Some of you may be aware of, it, uh, aware of it. I would encourage you to pick it up. It's called simply The Six Conversations. And she mentions this critical piece of curiosity in building a deeply connected society. A society that's not marked by incivility, but a society marked by compassion and love and mercy and in the book, she mentions a quote from Dale Carnegie who wrote, How to Win People and Influence, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, and, and the quote goes like this You can make more friends in two months by becoming genuinely interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. Ain't that some truth, right? Let me, let me say it again in, in case you missed it. You can make more friends. In two months, by becoming genuinely interested in other people, that requires you to get your eyes off of yourself long enough to be interested in someone else outside of your world. You can make more friends in two months by becoming genuinely interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. Stop trying to be impressive. Be curious. Stop trying to be impressive. Be curious. That's, that's what it looks like to cultivate curiosity. One philosophy professor of mine used to often say, be a student of one another. Be a student of one. You want to express love for the people around you? You want to know what that looks like? He would say, be a student of one another. Be a learner of one another. One of the best ways to express love and care for the people around you is to take up a genuine interest in their lives. By the way, fellas, you want to know the best way to pick up ladies? Be genuinely interested in them. 
this is I, just just this is free dating advice. You're not even asking for it. I'm gonna just give. I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you how to get a ten out of ten kind of kind of wife. Okay, be genuinely interested in them. Stop trying to be impressive. Be genuinely interested in them. Have a care. But again, look, I, I'm sort of joking, but I'm kind of not too. But this goes beyond just the dating sphere. Okay, we're not talking about dating. We are one. In the dating and the marriage sphere is a different oneness that's uh, we won't go there okay but, but like we are one within the body of Christ okay this is, this is I know we're spiraling downhill people are hands in the face okay just I, let, let me let me move on let me move on be a student of one another that's what it means to cultivate genuine curiosity in fact can I challenge you with something this week is there someone in your life that you can get to know simply on a deeper level are there questions that you have never asked someone that is in close proximity with you that you can take to the next level of beyond just being together in close proximity that we can move towards a soul-to-soul kind of connection? Is there someone in your life that you can get to know on a deeper level? One of the ways that I mentioned that we do this is by learning to ask questions. Uh, Heather, in her book, provides her top favorite 100 questions to ask people to get to know them. I've got a little handout for you, um, and that's going to be at the back welcome table on your way out, right outside of this room. Uh, You could stop over there, and that's uh, 100 questions. You don't know what to ask? You're not good coming up with questions? First of all, I would encourage you, the better, the, the, the more you ask questions, the better you get at asking questions. And so, so just, just start asking questions to get to know people. And if you don't know where to start, you can pick up one of those handouts, and uh, hopefully that'll help you. But let's be a people who would be a student of one another and really get to know the people around us by cultivating genuine curiosity. Let me give you this last application point, and it's simply this. See the person, not the issue. See the person and not the issue. As we get to know people, one of the things that will become painfully clear rather quickly is this. People have issues. Amen? Can anyone testify to that? Like, people have issues. I don't know if you know this, but did you know you have issues? And I don't even know all of you, but I know you got issues. You got issues. In fact, can you, can you do me a favor? Can you turn to someone next to you and tell them? Tell them. In case they don't know, you've got issues. you got issues. Go ahead. Tell them right now. you got issues. That's right. you got issues. Okay? Now, now, listen, listen. In case the person on your other side thinks they don't have issues, turn to them and tell them, you got issues too. you got issues too. That's right. Hey, friends, can we just say, can we just say all together, we got issues. Can we say that? We got issues. Let's just, let's acknowledge that we got issues. We all have issues. And I think the reason why I say that is because I think the tendency lies inside of you and within me to see the issues in another before we see another. 
to see the issue before we see the person. We tend to see the issues glaringly clear before we see the person. And if our tendency is to see people's issues first, it's no wonder why we have such a hard time moving towards one another in grace and in peace. It's no wonder why we have a hard time building relational bridges with each other. We tend to be more like islands than bridges. We say to each other, you keep your issues over there on your island. I, 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 got, I got enough issues of my own. I don't want to deal with your issues, and I don't want my issues to impact you, and so you keep your issues on your island. I'll keep my issues on mine, and yet when we look at the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is he didn't create an island. He, 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 didn't, he didn't look at our issues and say, not it. Not, I, I ain't touching that one. He didn't steer clear of our issues. No, no, no. What, what, what is... What did Jesus do? What's the good news of the gospel? He stepped into our issues. He became our issues. He embodied our issues and carried our issues and our sins and our vices, all of those things, to the cross, and he bore it on the cross once and for all so that we wouldn't have to be defined by our issues. So that we wouldn't have to be defined by our sins. So that the sum of our lives does not boil down to our most deepest dysfunctions and our flaws. Jesus went to the cross and bore it on the cross so that our lives might be identified by something entirely different. The atoning blood of Jesus that says, you are new, you are clean, you are given a new identity. See the person Not the issue is the very essence of the gospel. Jesus didn't create an island. He created a bridge to step into our lives. He didn't pull away from us. He drew near to us. And we as his people are called to do the same with one another. We're called to do the same. Not one of us is exempt from this. But in order to do that effectively, friends, we need to see the person and not the issue. And, and, and let me just, let me just end, end with this one piece here on this point. One of the most effective ways that I know how to do that, and I don't always do this perfectly, I don't always see the person. A lot of times, all I can see are the issues. Anyone with me on that one? Like, you're, you're thinking about people, and you're like... God, they get on my nerves, you know, like, oh, you know, like, I just can't stand them. They have, they have so many issues. Like, all you can see sometimes are issues. And by the way, I thank God that when Jesus looks at us, when God looks at us, that's not all he sees. He sees it, but he also sees us. And, and so I'll say this. I don't always get this right. I don't always do this well. But one of the most effective ways that I know how to do this is I simply pray for the person. I pray for the person. I pray for the person. The best way I know how to deal with not fixating on people's issues is by doing what Jesus said. You know what Jesus said? He said, hey, when, when people curse you, I want you to bless them. I want you to love those who hate you. I want you to honor those who dishonor you. You know why Jesus tells us to do those things? It's not, it's not to make us gluttons of punishment 
or, or sort of, you know, kind of masochist, like, you know, like we enjoy the, 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 the pain and the martyrdom of, of being a victim. Or, you know, that, that's not any of that. No, Jesus doesn't tell us to do any of that for that reason. He tells us to do that because the act of praying for our enemies and blessing our enemies and, and, and honoring our enemies changes the condition and the soil of our hearts than it does our enemies. That's why, like, do, do you remember, like, the whole essence of the Lord's prayer wasn't to get God to do something for us. It was to change our hearts before God. Right? Like, praying for our enemies doesn't change our enemies. It certainly could but that's not the goal, that, that, like, that's not the immediate byproduct that we're, we're looking for. Yes, at the end of the day, we want God to move in this person's life and, 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 and help this person with this issue and that issue and all of that. But at the end of the day, God, I've got issues, we've got issues, and I need you to do something in me before you do something in them. Change the soil of my life, change the condition of my soul and you want to know something that happens in that process? All of a sudden, the issues, all of a sudden, they don't go away. They just kind of fade into the background, and all of a sudden, you see a little bit clearer the person. You see the person, the imago Dei, the image of God, the imprint of God. You all, all of a sudden see the person beyond the issues. Now, listen, I'm not calling people with issues my enemies. Like, I, there's, 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 there's some correlation there, but the same principles apply here. How do I stop fixating on other people's issues? How do I see the person and not the issue? I just do what Jesus told me to do. If he says pray for the person, I'm going to pray for the person. If he tells me to bless the person, I'm going to bless the person. If he tells me to encourage the person in my spirit, I'm going to encourage them with everything I've got, with all my might. And the more I do that, the more I'm able to see the person in spite of the issue, the more we can walk in oneness together. Jesus prays in John 17 that we would be one as he and the Father are one. I said it earlier, the strongest testimony of our faith is our love for one another. And the ability to love one another, it, it, it comes with a few barriers. It's hard. We've got to We've got to work through the barrier of, of this overestimation of first impressions. We've got to work through this barrier of this overly inward focus that kills curiosity. We've got to overcome the barrier of fixating on people's issues rather than the person. And, oh, God, give us grace to do that. We need your help to do that. See, loving one another that that yields oneness with one another requires us to overcome some of these barriers. These, these are legitimate barriers to our oneness in the body of Christ. And I pray and I pray and I pray that by the grace of God, we be able to overcome these barriers and achieve the unity within the body whereby we shine the glory of Jesus. We are the beholders, we are the holders, we are the containers of the glory of God. But we can't let that glory shine if there's division amongst us. I don't know who this word is for. I, uh, this week, I probably went through four different changes in my message. I'm trying to think. There, yeah, I think it was about four different changes. Uh, I, I was going to preach on this. 
and Monday I was praying. I'm like, ah, I don't think that's, that's what, Lord, you're saying to our people. And then Wednesday, I'm like, mm, maybe it's this. And it came off the heels of a, a great teaching that one of our elders gave at, at, at midweek. I'm like, maybe, maybe there's something to that. And I'm like, mm, I think it's, it's close to the mark, but I, I don't think it's the mark. I don't know who this is for, but I just, I, I just get the sense that there is, there is a work of oneness that, like, I don't even really fully know what that looks like. I mean, I, I gave you some practical pieces here. But the end goal of what that final product is to look like, I I don't really know. But I do know that Jesus felt so deeply convicted about this that we have an account in Scripture of Jesus praying, Oh, God, I pray that they may be perfectly one as you, Father, and I are one. I don't know what can happen. I can only dream of it, of a church, of a body of believers on the campus here at Penn State that say there is truly no division amongst us where we are linking arms and wanting to see the glory of God shine on this campus, where we want to see the glory of God shine in and through my life into someone else's life. To me, that's exciting. To me, that's like, oh, God, so may it be so. In fact, I want to pray that for us here as the worship team comes forward. They're going to prepare to close us with a final song. But if you don't mind, just bowing your heads with me in a word of prayer.